Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. First class for luxury, second for comfort, third class for economy, and steerage for the immigrant. But the band played for everyone. From Critical Frequency, this is B. Beeman, and you're listening to Peace of Mind. I'm a singer-songwriter and producer, I'm a dad, and I'm an American. Peace of Mind is an experiment. It's my new album, but I'm releasing it as a podcast. Today's episode is called Beyond the Border, and the theme, as you may have guessed, is immigration. And this is a topic that really resonates with me because my parents are immigrants. They're ethnic Tamils from Sri Lanka. They came here in the 1960s, mostly for economic reasons. But in the decades following, Tamils were heavily persecuted, and the country became embroiled in a brutal and violent civil war. Many, many Tamils were killed or disappeared, and many more were internally displaced. So when I see what's happening now in Syria, in Yemen, Myanmar, and in Central America, it troubles me deeply. But thankfully, there are some very smart and courageous folks working to protect immigrants and refugees, like activist filmmaker Paula Mendoza and, a, and attorney at the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project, Ahalan Arlanandam. And today, we'll hear about the work that they do on behalf of immigrants. And we'll also hear from Todd Schulte, president at Forward.us. And a little bit later, I'll be breaking down how I wrote and produced this song. We're all trying to find a safe place to live here on this little blue marble of ours. And many times when you see a mass migration of people, it's because of violence or destruction. And sometimes the lack of empathy and compassion for these circumstances is frustrating. The experience of the immigrant, it's not an easy one. It's something that I've woven into a lot of my songs. My last album was sort of an immigrant story. I wrote songs called Move Into Brussels which was kind of like a breakup song, but an immigrant's breakup with the only country they've ever known. Bread and Butter was another song which is celebrating the hard work and also the vitality of many immigrant communities. I had a song called There Goes the Neighborhood, and that took a different tact. That took the tact of the uh, Stephen Millers, Steve Bannon, the Steves of the world. Basically someone lamenting the changing face of their America. And even maybe my most popular song to date, which was a song called Gutter Snipe. I jumped the first train I saw, it'll surely take. 
a person who's penniless and, and just roaming from town to town almost doesn't really have a home. Something that's always stuck with me was the Statue of Liberty and those famous, incredibly moving words by Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I'll never forget those words. Paolo Mendoza recently traveled with the migrant caravan in November 2018. Many of the people she encountered were matriarchs finding their way through Central America, sometimes with several children in tow. When you were traveling with the caravan for a bit, and what was that like? What surprised you? Were you surprised by anything down there? I was surprised by quite a lot. Um, my life as a filmmaker started in the form of documentary filmmaking. And documentary filmmaking, you are given the great honor to go into someone's life and be a fly on the wall and be with them during the most intimate and painful and celebratory moments. And, you know, I got the idea to go down to the caravan because I saw Donald Trump starting to tweet and talk about it. And I started to see very clearly how he was going to make it an issue uh, a manufactured crisis, a lie. And at the beginning, I was telling everyone, don't tweet about it, don't respond to Trump, let's just not give it the attention that he's trying to get out of it. But then very soon, the swell of the drama of the crisis of the invasion started to happen. And so my only recourse at that moment, I thought, was to go down and tell their stories. They're fleeing mm -hmm. countries that are war-torn. They're fleeing people that have threatened them and their families. They're getting kicked out of literally their houses are being stolen from them. They are surviving and fleeing war. And so to me, that is a refugee. And so going down to the caravan, my goal was to humanize these people because Donald Trump had done such a great job in taking away their humanity. And what I found there was massive amounts of women and children, fathers and families that literally were walking 30 miles a day in the heat. And the amount of physical pain that people were in and the risk that people were taking particularly moms, to get their children to safety only spoke to me what an incredible mother these women were that were traveling with their children under such dire circumstances because what they were fleeing had to be so much worse than what they were living. And they confirmed that when I spoke to them. And the amount of pain and trauma I saw on those trips is the thing that surprised me probably the most. Mm -hmm. Is there a family or a person you met that just sticks with you. Their story kind of made you, yeah. you know, lose your breath, I guess. Yeah. I've continued to be in contact with many families that I met along the caravan and I followed them from Oaxaca all the way to Tijuana and have continued to be in contact with them when they crossed into the United States. One family in particular, the mother's name was Rosa and she had four children. I met Rosa on the first day of the caravan. So I literally was in a van driving to the caravan to meet them and we knew what road they were on and we got there and we started seeing people because also 7,000 people walking, folks spread out. We got out of the car and I just started talking with people and an hour in I saw a woman that was sitting underneath a small tree on some dead grass 
who was breastfeeding a small baby. And it was the first mom I had seen breastfeeding on the caravan. Sadly, it became quite common after my encounter with Rosa. So I approached her and I started talking to her. And I was amazed that she was with a four-month-old baby and she had been on the caravan almost a month and a half. That means that she had left when the baby was three months old. And then I found out that Rosa had three other children with her. She had an 18-month-old, a five-year-old, and a 10-year-old. And she was a single mom, traveling by herself, fleeing an extremely abusive husband who threatened to kill her and her children, and just was fleeing horrible violence. And I couldn't believe that this small, petite woman had made it with these four kids on her own this entire way. And she told me that she had a big stroller when she started off, where she put the 18-month-old and the five-year-old. And she told me that that stroller broke about two weeks into their trek, which meant that the five-year-old had to walk and that the 10-year-old had to carry the 18-month-old while they walked. And the 10-year-old is this tiny little scrawny girl and the five-year-old reminds me of my son. She's a firecracker, troublemaker in all the best ways. <laughs> and they had to walk 30 miles a day. And this mom and these children had made it that far. And now she's in the United States going through the process of asylum. And the girls are going to start school, hopefully within the next two weeks. Wow. I was going to ask you if there's a positive story. Like, there's a lot of sad stories, but... That is actually a, a pretty positive story, just of yeah. human strength and resilience and all that. Yeah, and what I tell people is like, that's the person that you want in this country. You want someone that is so determined that can beat the odds. I mean, her qualities are what we believe the quote-unquote American dream to be. So that is who she is, and her children also have that inside of them that they were able to travel so far and so long with Rosa. Rosa was also one of the families that was tear-gassed. Her son, the four-month-old, was in the hospital for three days with a lung infection. There is so much that happened in her trajectory that should have turned her back, but she was determined, and that determination, I believe, is something that we should celebrate and something that we should reward, particularly when she is going through a legal process exactly as she should be. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were talking about your mom and how she performed miracles every day and mm -hmm. how you've come a very long way, I would say, from your humble beginnings. So hopefully Rosa's family has the same future. Is there anything about the the caravan that, I mean, it's a football that people like to throw around, but I don't think people really take time to understand it, you know? Like maybe they understand, oh, there, there are people moving, but why are they moving? And is there anything like you think people just don't understand about this caravan? Yeah, I think there's a lot that people don't understand. I did a cultural analysis on my social media just last week about this. I tried to put it in context in a way in which Americans could understand because so often the argument around the caravan is, well, why did those parents put their children in danger? And how dare they take their children on a two-month journey? Of course their child is going to get sick. And so I recently watched, and I'm going to preface this for anyone that hasn't seen Bird Box, that I'm going to give a lot of spoilers out. Cool. The basic premise is there's an apocalypse happening, and then this mom who has two children is told of a place that's super far away and super dangerous to get to, but that her and her children will be safe. And so she picks up, and she goes on this treacherous journey, and all you want is for this mom to make it, and you're rooting for her, and then she gets to sanctuary, and they let her into the house, and it's safe and peaceful, and everything is good. What I realized in that moment is that Bird Box is the perfect 
parallel story and metaphor for the caravan. It is the same thing. And these moms are fleeing violent circumstances to a place that is extremely far away, but there is hope there and the promise of safety. And so they risk everything to make it to these places. And I'm not even getting to the place of like, what do we do? Do we quote unquote, let them in or not? All I'm saying is let the process exist the way it does. Let them live out their legal right and their legal process to ask for asylum in the United States. Like Paula said, there's a lot people don't understand about the forces driving people out of Central America. With all the reporting about the current crisis, what's little understood is that the mass exodus to the United States earlier this year was actually 30 years in the making. It all began in the early 1980s when El Salvador was in the midst of a brutal civil war. It was the height of the Cold War and the Reagan administration, fearful of communist expansion in Central America, supported the military-backed government with arms and financing. 75,000 were killed in the conflict, mostly at the hands of government forces. It's estimated that hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans fled their war-torn country seeking refuge in the United States. Sometimes it's hard to digest all the humanity when people are displaced. There's a lot of individual suffering that goes on physically and mentally. The politics of immigration is a rough sport, no doubt. But my next guest is the calm at the center of the storm. We met him last week. His name is Ahalan Arlanandam. He's an attorney at the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project, and he is fighting in courts every day to keep immigration law in this country on the moral high ground. His experience is basically unparalleled today in the field of immigration law. He understands the policy, what's happening in the courts, and maybe most importantly, what is happening to these people who are being used like a political football. From 2002 to 2004, Ahlan was an assistant federal public defender in El Paso, Texas. I'd been working in New York for two years, and I had the sense that to really understand the whole picture, you have to also understand the border. It was a chance to represent people in criminal cases and really be that last line of defense for people. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. I think it made me understand the perspective that people make too much of the border, especially El Paso. You know, El Paso is next to Juarez, mm -hmm. and a lot of our client population were people whose families for generations had gone back and forth. Mm -hmm. I also saw firsthand the brutality of the federal immigration enforcement system in a way that you do not get a picture of if you're elsewhere in the country. People get sent to prison for years for coming back to see their families. And it happens all the time. And this is not immigration detention like what I work on now, where people are fighting to avoid deportation. This is criminally punished for coming into the country after having been deported to see their families. And it happens so often. I mean, that's the most prosecuted federal crime in the entire country, whole nation, whole federal system. And most of the prosecutions are happening in the border region. That was eye-opening. And then I also did a lot of drug cases. That is a huge chunk of the uh, federal criminal uh, enforcement regime. We spend a lot of money and a lot of people go to jail for a long period of time, separated from their families, their lives wrecked by prison because they're trying to make money driving marijuana over the border. I mean, that seems like just a rationale to target certain people. Is, is that going too far? No, not at all. 
the choice to focus on the drug trade by people in the U.S. government and the U.S. attorney's office and uh, to focus on immigration crime, people illegally crossing the border, that's a conscious decision to spend our resources that way. In 2017, within 10 days of being sworn in as president, Donald Trump issued an executive order suspending the U.S. refugee admission program for 120 days, which had been in place since the 1951 Refugee Convention. So the Refugee Convention comes from World War II, and the U.S. played a really leading role in having that come to be this important international treaty that a number of countries signed, partly because the U.S. had sent Jews who had fled Germany, particularly one set of them who had come on a boat. The liner St. Louis brings its human cargo to port at last. 907 Jewish unfortunates without a country, 10,000 of their kinsmen are still homeless on the high seas. Three million more are in bondage in Central Europe, a bondage forcing them to the greatest migration since the days of the pharaohs. And the U.S. government denied them protection and sent them back something like a third of them, if I remember right, died in the Holocaust. And then after World War II, there was this recognition that was a horrible, horrible mistake. And partly for that reason, the U.S. led the way in creating this international legal regime called the Refugee Protection System, the center of which is the Refugee Convention. I know like in the 60s, there was a protocol that probably allowed my father to come to America. What was that called? You know your refugee law. <laughs> <laughs> no, I you do not. A refugee law for a musician. Um, <laughs> yeah, the original one only applied to Europe. Yeah, so it was deeply yeah. Eurocentric in that way. Uh, and the protections that it gave that you won't send people back to a country where they're going to be persecuted just applied to European people. And then in 1967, they extended it globally through the protocol to the convention. But repeatedly in history, the U.S. has occasionally been really generous about accepting people fleeing persecution. And then in other times, there have been eras like the one we're in now, where the government is just being incredibly harsh and brutal and unfair and refusing to recognize that people from Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala are refugees fleeing persecution, just like these other ones we're talking about in the past. But in just one specific case, I'm sure this applies to many groups of people, but there's a term used for people who are here based on like a temporary asylum. And I believe in the past year and a half, there's been like a purge of it or they're, they're forcing people yeah, to... Yeah, I'm smiling because that's my case. Oh. And today I was negotiating with the government over how to implement the court victory that we got on that particular subject. Hmm. So what you're talking about is temporary protected status. And it's a humanitarian law that Congress passed that allowed people from certain countries who are already here, either there's a natural disaster or a civil war that makes it very, very difficult for the countries to accept the return of their nationals. The U.S. then allows those people to stay and work here. There have been about five or six countries that have had TPS for a long time. The longest ones, Honduras, El Salvador, Sudan, not everybody from those countries, but just the set of people who were displaced by the civil war in Sudan or the earthquake in El Salvador in 2003 or Hurricane Mitch, and then Hades 2010. All in all, it's about 400,000 people that have TPS, most of them from those five countries. And these anti-immigrant 
I mean, really racist. Southern Poverty Law Center will say these are hate groups, like the Federation for American Immigration Reform and Center for Immigration Studies. They have these names. Uh, but if you, if you look at the founders, there are people who have come out of the white nationalist movement. They targeted TPS and said, we need to stop these policies. You've got to get rid of all these people, which is particularly brutal when you're talking about people who've lived here for like 20 years and who have lawful status. Probably you're well integrated in the society and you have children and families and all the rest of it. And so people from these far right anti-immigrant groups under the Trump administration came into the government and are now holding high level positions in Department of Homeland Security, uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, this really key government posts and they really wanted to end TPS and that's what they did. They ended TPS for El Salvador, Haiti, Sudan, Nicaragua, and then Honduras and now Nepal. And in each case, it massively decreased the number of people so that now 98% of the people who had TPS when the Trump administration began or are slated to no longer have it. So we sued over this. I won't bother you with all the legal theories. Tell me the good news. Yeah, the good news is that a federal judge in our case said that the government probably had violated both this technical law called the Administrative Procedures Act and then also the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause, because these decisions were motivated by race discrimination. And therefore, the judge blocked the terminations of TPS from going into effect which meant that all these people who were scheduled to lose their TPS status over the next few months now have at least a temporary reprieve while the case goes on. Wow. I mean, it's a it's an ongoing battle, I guess, so just a reprieve, but still very needed. Yeah, it was very good news. The Sudanese TPS holders were scheduled to lose their immigration status on November 2nd. And these are people who have lived here since 1997 with lawful status. I mean, you can't imagine how horrific this is. After you've been here for 20 years and you have citizen children and all this, and you've lived here lawfully the whole time, the government should grant you lawful permanent residence. It's even what Republican senators wanted when they came to the president. They proposed giving permanent residence to TPS holders from these countries. And that's the meeting in which the president said, why do we want all these people from shithole countries? This was a big part of why we won our race discrimination claim, because it wasn't just the president spouting off random racist stuff. He was talking about TPS holders, and he said, I don't want these people here. Cut them out of any immigration deal, because these are people from shithole countries. Yeah, the president is just so flippant with the things he says. So you literally present his words as evidence. Yeah. Okay. Enough talking about Trump, I can't even stomach it anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you've talked a little bit about it, but is there a difference between an immigrant and a refugee and asylum seeker, or are those interchangeable? The law sees them as really different from each other. An immigrant is just a person who's coming here to reside technically permanently. The assumption is for family or economic reasons. Refugee and asylum seeker are both people who are fleeing persecution because of their race, religion, national origin, political opinion, or membership in a social group. That's the refugee convention definition. And then refugee versus asylum seeker. A refugee is a person who usually in the U.S. is plucked out of a refugee camp already given that status, and then they come here with the status in hand. The asylum seeker is somebody who fled for those same reasons, 
but has to come to the border or come into the U.S. either way, but then ask for asylum and prove their case to get it. And that difference, I think, is very poorly understood by most people in the public and even in the press who write about these things. You can't go to the U.S. embassy in Sri Lanka if you're a Tamil who's been beaten or tortured or under threat of death from the army and ask for asylum. Uh, there's no visa that you can ask for for asylum. And you can't come here under the refugee program unless you just happen to be in one of these handful of places, refugee camps where the U.S. government is processing some number of people and taking them. So if you want to flee, and not just to the U.S., any country that recognizes the protections under the refugee law, you have to get to that country. And only then, when you come to the border or get into that country somehow, can you then ask for asylum. Perhaps the most demonized of all the many demonized populations of the Trump administration has been refugees and asylum seekers. And part of what I find so horrible is they act as though you've done something wrong when you're fleeing horrific gang violence in El Salvador or Honduras. Like, there's literally nothing else you can do under our law to get the protection of our country. And the same goes for refugees who are fleeing war and famine. Apart from attacking the asylum seeker system, the Trump administration has also attacked the refugee protection system. They've dropped both the total number of people that we're taking from, I think it was 100,000 to 50,000 to 30,000. And they've also made it much, much, much harder just to get through the security screen system. They've just filled it with bureaucratic sand and slowed it down so that the number of people who are actually able to come here is very small. These are also some incredibly sad and cruel stories. Like the first clients we had in the original suit we brought challenging the Muslim ban were people who had interpreted for the U.S. military in Iraq. And then they get tagged with being U.S. sympathizers and need to get out of the country before they get killed. And then you impose this ban and then they can't come here anymore. So that's a whole nother very cruel, inhumane thing that the Trump administration has done when it comes to immigration and refugee policy. We talked a lot about the current administration's treatment of immigrants, so I was surprised to find out that actually the harshest immigration law of the last 25 years was signed by Bill Clinton in 1996. The whole modern system we have, what we call the immigration detention system, which is just like parallel prison system for people where the government wants to deport them, they want to contest their deportation, and essentially they get locked up while their cases are pending through the immigration courts. That is a creature of this 1996 law. It also authorized lots of people to be deported for minor criminal offenses, even after serving their time. Now the government will come and deport you for it, and they'll deport you even if you're a green card holder. You're a lawful permanent resident, but it's not actually permanent. Even relatively minor crimes will get you put in this position. In that same 1996 law, uh, they created this regime which allowed asylum seekers to have their claims assessed first by these DHS officers. And only if you passed that assessment were you allowed to go see an immigration judge. That's called expedited removal. This is like all very technical stuff, but it really, really matters. So that was this kind of earthquake-like shift in the immigration law, and it happened my first year in law school. The Patriot Act in 2001 also was very significant, particularly on the national security side. But almost all the changes since then haven't so much been in laws. They've just been in more draconian enforcement practices, like taking the same set of laws 
than the agency just applying them in a harsher and more brutal way. The population of detained immigrants has more than doubled. Now it's like 44,000 people tonight will go to sleep in this prison, but it's not a prison. You don't have a right to a lawyer. You don't have a right to a hearing in front of a judge, but you're dressed in orange jumpsuits and you can't hug your children at night. So it's like a system of imprisonment without trial that we have. There's no legal change. It's just the bureaucracy and the system kind of starting to operate in a more oppressive way than it did before. And this is not just about xenophobia or racism. It's also about money. And part of what's going on is that you have a private prison lobby, which did not exist before because we didn't have private prisons very much. And they've come to now be this massive industry. So then they lobby the Congress and they lobby state governments too. And they push for all these policies that cause more people to be incarcerated. I mean, that has nothing really to do with the public as such. It's just there's this new industry which has all this political power that it didn't have before. What are like some of the most common misconceptions about immigrants and and maybe more specifically Central American immigrants? You talked about it a bit, but... Um, yeah. I mean, one big misconception about the undocumented population as a whole is that they're people who have come here very recently. A significant majority of the undocumented population has been here more than 10 years. It's something like... Four million American-born U.S. citizen children who have one or both parents who are undocumented. And that I, I find is a really interesting and troubling statistic that people don't fully kind of get their head around. And I think people have this very otherized sense of the immigrant population. What are you hopeful about in America today? This is not the right time to be asking me that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, are you hopeful? I mean, you just answered no, basically. (laughs) I mean, look, like I said, I came to law school in 1996. And now it's 2018. And I've devoted most of my work life to immigration and refugee issues. If you look at the law and the policy and the practice, everything, the state of the world in 1996 on those issues, and you look at it now, it's like, Things have not been going in the right direction, you know, for my entire adult legal career. Things have been going in the wrong direction. So it's a little bit hard to be hopeful, right? That being said, all these movements, they take time. Massive social change is difficult to implement. And one thing I'm hopeful about, there's a lot more public participation and involvement in all these kinds of activism than I've seen at any point previously in my career doing this work. To learn about ways to get involved, head to peaceofmindpod.com and consider joining me in becoming a donor to the ACLU. They give us and keep all the freedom. Our next guest is Todd Schulte. He's president at Forward.us. They focus on making positive change in U.S. policy, on immigration issues, and criminal justice reform. We started our conversation talking about the Trump administration's attempt to add a citizenship question to the census something that hasn't happened since the 1950s. I mean, no one who is in government, Republican or Democrat, for the last couple decades thought, let's put a citizenship question on the census. People know what that's designed to do. It's designed to get people to not answer their door. And you can pretend it's about different things, but that's what it's about. You hear things like, we're going to revoke birthright citizenship unilaterally. The president rolled that out kind of casually in the fall. These are foundational questions of our republic. Because it's not just about immigrants, right? You talk about 
adding a citizenship question, that dilutes the power of people who live in immigrant communities. Fewer people are going to get counted. I live in Washington, D.C. You know, we have a higher foreign-born population than a lot of places. If you scare immigrants, that means my political power is diluted because I happen to live in a place where there's more immigrants around. That's the design, but it's wrong. A recent proposal from the Department of Homeland Security to change its public charge rule has immigration advocates very concerned. The change would let DHS take into consideration the use of health care, housing, or nutrition programs by legal immigrants as a charge against them when applying... The public charge memo is essentially a very subjective reinterpretation that says, we aren't going to give you the exact criteria. But there's a bunch of things previously that if you got access to, things like using public health resources, they weren't going to hurt your ability to apply for a green card. We're not even going to tell you they will hurt your ability to apply for a green card. We're going to say they may hurt your ability to apply for a green card. All of a sudden, you're encouraging people to, to not do really basic things in life. Go to the DMV, get a driver's license, show up and get their kids inoculated. Their kids, by the way, who, who may be U.S. citizens. And again, like you're making life harder not just for these immigrants and their family members, but for everybody in the United States. Like if we are pushing people away from smart public health resources, that costs us all a huge amount of money in the long term. But the cruelty and the chaos is an end in and of itself. In episode one, I spoke with social psychologist Lee Ross about the madness that we're living in today. And one thing that kept coming up was this sense of us and them, like oil and water. One of the most basic findings in all of the social sciences is the tendency for people to see the world in terms of an us and a them. An us to whom we have duties and a them to whom we have very little obligation. The distinction between us and them isn't just something that people do, it's something that animals do, and it's certainly something that primates, including uh, apes and gorillas and baboons, all of these critters make a distinction between an us and a them. The unique thing about human beings is that they feel a need to justify and rationalize our own behavior. And we are uncomfortable acting in ways that are inconsistent with our beliefs and moral codes. That's the good news. The bad news is that we're very good at rationalizing and justifying after the fact, and that we don't do it just individually, we do it collectively. We form groups. So even if we didn't come up with good explanations for why the other people are bad, and it's okay to harm them or exploit them, there are always going to be groups and leaders who exploit that tendency and tell us how we might do that. Up next, I'll break down the song you've been hearing throughout the episode, Beyond the Border. But first, a recommendation of another podcast I think you'll enjoy. 
Displaced is the podcast to listen to if you want to better understand what is the largest global displacement crisis since World War II. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. And in this season, we're going to focus on one of the most important issues shaping the displacement crisis. That's how the nature of war is changing. If you're interested in technology, we're going to be filling you with nightmares of killer drones, cyber warfare, and artificial intelligence leading to global conflict. I, I'm like really curious. I want to know about how all of the negative trends that we're seeing and how technology is shaping our lives, like everybody looking at their phones all the time, actually translates into warfare. But we are going to get quite practical. We're going to be asking, what are the wars that are going to be the worst in 2019? Where should we be focusing our attention? And how are shifting technologies, tactics, and changes to the international global order shaping the way conflicts start and play out? Subscribe to Season 2 of Displaced Now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this song out, you know, with these chords. Um... And it was a cool chord progression. I, th I think I had a demo with the acoustic guitar, with that riff, the timing and the chord progression and the way everything lands. And Logic has a synth called Alchemy, and it's a, it's a beast. I must have been listening to a lot of Jump by Van Halen or something. I just love that. And then I had this kind of funky beat. And I usually get the foundation of a song and then I start adding flavors and colors and whatever you want to call them. And um, I added these guitar bang, bang. Bink, bank, bank, bank. And then I had these, it might be steel drums. What is that? African mallets. Brought a lot of techniques I've researched and learned over the years. And even this riser right here. I've never had a riser in a song before. So uh, I thought, why not on this one? But then the final thing that, that really sealed the deal for me is, is loving the song was that opening lead guitar part, that electric lead line, was heavily influenced by the Allman Brothers. Even all of the guitar work throughout. I think the Allman Brothers are maybe America's greatest rock band, one of them. Um, it's like Santana, Allman Brothers. I'm, I just have a soft spot for the Allman Brothers. There are, there's no one who sounds like them. Bill Graham actually said one of his favorite bands was the Allman Brothers. In all my life, I've never heard the kind of music that this group plays, the finest contemporary music. We're gonna round it off with the best of them all, the Allman Brothers. I love that melting pot that they put together. And obviously one of their biggest hits was Ramblin' Man. Everybody knows that opening line. That is a really fun lick to play.
America has had a, a white supremacist strain running through it since its inception, basically. From the African slave trade to treatment of Native Americans. I guess the inspiration for, for the line comes from one of the greatest comedians of all time, I would say. One of the most thoughtful ones, for sure. One of the most brilliant. Um, that's Bill Hicks. But he had a great, great line. Folks, we're a virus with fucking shoes, man. That's all we are. So that virus with shoes line, and I was doing around in my head, and I was thinking, it's this mentality of other human beings are seen as insects or germs to be eradicated. And so I had this line. It's like we're an outbreak, like a disease, and they are the treatment, as though they are the, the medicine that cures this quote-unquote cancer on America and the world, I guess, at large. It's like we're an outbreak and they are the treatment. I mean, there's not much more to say. It's pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty raw analysis on my part, but it's true. It is just true. But the song is really about a family and uh, the head of a household being deported from America to Mexico or elsewhere in Central America. Because their lives are not just turned upside down, we're talking like upside down world. And a lot of people never recover. It truly can shatter lives. Not just the person deported, but the children, the mothers, the fathers, the grandparents. You know, it's heartbreaking. As you can hear from this breakdown of the song, it was a pretty produced affair. But I actually had a show in New York at Carnegie Hall. We were rehearsing it and I was just, it just wasn't working. And, you know, sometimes in rehearsal, you have to change things up and reassess and rearrange songs. Sometimes you have to do a surgery on a song and sometimes you got to do a major surgery. And this one was a full lobotomy. And I asked Aki Burmese, uh, who was playing keyboards with me, great keyboardist and, and singer-songwriter himself, if he could do something on an acoustic piano just a solemn ballad and of course Aki did his thing and um, everyone joined me on vocals and it was a very stripped down affair and it was really beautiful and moving and it was really the first time I'd played that song like that and it really moved the audience I got a lot of comments about it afterwards and that really you know made me proud of the song and there's like the uh, songwriting test where like can you play it on an acoustic guitar or a piano uh, without all the production and is it still good and and that was one of them for sure i mean they're all like that all my songs are like that but this one really hit the nail on the head i would say i released a video for that song you can find that on my youtube page on my website and um check that out yeah i'm really proud of both these versions they're very different but the message is the same And now, here's the full song. Be sure to come back next week. We're talking about religion and faith with very special guests Reza Aslan and Rabia Chowdhury.
Peace of Mind is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency, one of the few women-owned and operated networks. If you want to support them, consider joining Critical Frequency Premium, where you can get access to ad-free and bonus content for shows like Drilled, Peace of Mind, and a bunch of others. Check it out at criticalfrequency.org join. This episode was written and produced by Katie Ross, Amy Westervelt, and me, B. Beeman. All music for the show was written and performed by me, and you can find it on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and me. For extra content and upcoming tour dates, go to peaceofmindpod.com. And please support us by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join us next week for some peace of mind.